Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your grace and your kindness, uh, but chiefly this morning, we praise you for your great love, uh, the love that we uh, were just singing about and have sung about um, this morning. Lord, we praise you that you are not just sovereign and you're not just mighty and you're not just in control of the affairs of man meticulously, but Lord, you are a loving God, a good God, a God who is overflowing in kindness and loyalty and faithfulness to us in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you for your loving kindness to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning, help us to learn uh, at your feet from your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, heed the words of Paul this morning, Lord, that we would be able to live and would live faithfully to you in a world that's increasingly hostile uh, to those who want to follow in the steps of your Son. Lord, we do pray that you would bless our time this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, you can also take your bulletin and you can turn it to the other side and ignore all the stuff on the front page there. Uh, the Lord is sovereign and He's in control. And we do pray for Pastor Dan, uh, but we trust the Lord. The Lord had a different word for us this morning. So I invite you, uh, as you turn there to 2 Timothy 3, uh, to pray. Pray that the Lord would bless our time together. But as you're turning there, uh, let me give you a couple of uh, things since you don't have them written down on your notes <laughs> like normal. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 17 this morning, 10 to 17. I've titled the message, How to Live Faithfully in Perilous Times. How to Live Faithfully in Perilous Times from uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 17. There is certainly little doubt that the time in which we live is one of increasing hostility. Uh, increasing hostility to God uh, and to all those who would follow after Christ. I'm not a cultural anthropologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not even an expert in my own culture. Um, I, I, I know very little about what is happening in the world. I, uh, I, I do know a few things, uh, but I don't keep up with everything maybe like I should. Uh, but one thing I do know uh, is that I can recognize, as you can, that there is a change that has happened in our culture and in society over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, it's a change that has placed those who want to follow Christ uh, in direct opposition with the larger uh, movers and shakers, influencers of our uh, culture. And what we're seeing, increasingly so, is that the absolute truths of the gospel that we hold dearly uh, and the, the Christian ethic itself are not simply being rejected, uh, but actually, they're being publicly denounced more and more. And as uh, they're treated as not just wrong, but wrong-headed entirely, and in many cases, as the epitome of evil and wickedness. Uh, we're called bigots and uh, hateful, and uh, we're told we're on the wrong side of history over and again. And we're told that to speak the truth is hate speech. And we see that uh, in increasing measure in our culture. And we're also, sadly, seeing many who 
once confessed the evangelical faith that we hold dear, and even leaders among evangelicals caving to the mounting pressure of society. Uh, They're seeking to remake the church uh, into the image of American culture in the 21st century. And so in a word, these are are perilous times that we live in, not to mention a war that has just begun in Europe. Um, So we, we understand that. We understand that we're in a culture that's against us. We understand that the world is opposed to us. Uh, we, of all people, understand that we are in enemy territory, as it were. And there are perilous times. And, and within this culture, this context that we find ourselves in, there are a myriad of dangers that are knocking on your door as a Christian and that you face at every turn. There are these hazards uh, to Christian faithfulness. And let me just name a few of them for you. Uh, there's the danger, the hazard of unwittingly buying into a deceitful philosophy, a way of viewing the world. This is Colossians 2.8. We're told to be on guard against these philosophies. Now, these are not just uh, Aristotelian or Platonic philosophies. These are ways of viewing the world, and you see them all the time. You see them in commercials. You see them on the billboards on the side of the road. These are all arguments for how to live life. Every time you read the billboard, Uh, It's presenting to you a way of living, a way of thinking. And those are increasingly opposed to God. Uh, The danger of compromising clear biblical truths in order to escape the unwanted consequences of following Christ. We want to compromise truth to secure our ease or popularity or comfort or uh, reception in our culture. There's the danger also of hardening our hearts to those who are opposed to God, right? those who are actively opposed to Christ and the gospel, there is a danger that we would harden our hearts towards them. The Lord mentions this in uh, Matthew 24. Jesus says that in the end, there will be this increase in lawlessness, uh, that lawlessness will increase. Uh, and as a result of that, he says, most people's love will grow cold. And there's a correlation between increased lawlessness in a society and hardness towards one another. And if we're not careful as Christians, we see this increased lawlessness, and rather than being heartbroken over uh, the mess of people's lives, we will look at them with a sneer uh, or hard-heartedness, or cold. And rather than have compassion for people who are enslaved to the devil and his philosophy, we might grow cold towards them. And that's a real danger that we have to be on guard against in a society like ours. There's also the danger of mixing the truth with error, of of compromise. Well, let's not reject this philosophy entirely. Let's just uh, integrate it into Scripture, right? So we can try to have our uh, conservative worldview, uh, our scriptural worldview, rather, and mix it with the philosophies of the current age. Well, those are just a few of the dangers. We could, you have your dangers that you've probably thought of already, and we can multiply examples. But the point is that we live in perilous times, and if, if you're not, as a Christian, on high alert, if you're not aware of the danger around you, then you are uh, potentially going to be a, a, a casualty in this war. The war is raging, whether you realize it or not. 
And we want to be aware of the, the hazards. And so the question before us, actually, this morning is, how do we, as Christians, live faithfully to God in the midst of our current situation? How do we do that? In the midst of increasing hostility, how do we carry out our lives in a way that's honoring to the Lord? For us, the worst thing that we could ever do is dishonor God. Right? That's the worst thing a Christian could ever do, is dishonor the Lord. So we want, as Christians, to think carefully about how we navigate the increasing opposition we're experiencing, and also how we navigate uh, this war that's happening in Europe now, and all the other issues that are presented to us as we live. So how do we do that? How do we walk, how do we live faithfully to God in places in which God has sovereignly placed us, uh, places of increasing opposition to Christ and to his gospel? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, the text before us this morning gives us two ways, at least, two ways that we can cultivate faithful lives in the midst of a, an increasingly hostile society. And let me give them to you, and then we'll read our text together. The first Paul gives us is, he says, you are to remember who you follow. Right? You want to live faithfully in this world of increasing hostility? Remember who you follow. That's verses 10 to 13. And second... Remain in the truth. It's verses 14 to 17. So remember and remain. Remember who you follow and remain in the truth. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned, and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or competent, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. So first, if we're going to be faithful uh, in difficult times, we have to remember who we follow. Remember who we follow. This is verses 10 to 13. Now, it was at the beginning of his second missionary journey that the Apostle Paul came to a town in modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor, called Lystra. And according to history, uh, Lystra was a wild district, a wild district with a rude population. That's a direct quote. It's not a place that you would want to vacation. Right? Wild district with a rude population. Uh, I'm not even sure what that means exactly. Uh, but it's not a place that you would want to visit or stay long at least. But here in this place, Lystra, Paul met a young man who was in his mid uh, to late 20s. And this young man was named Timothy. And in this little town, Timothy 
had developed a reputation of someone who was godly. And in fact, he had exhibited, Timothy had exhibited such a desire for faithfulness and steadfastness that after the apostle Paul visited Lystra and had preached there, he decided, Paul decided, to bring this young 20-year-old with him on his journey to Greece to preach the gospel and reach the nations. And so Timothy quickly became Paul's primary disciple and fellow worker for the gospel. And we know this. Uh, as a young man, Timothy traveled with Paul throughout modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. He was with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, he, Timothy actually became such a vital part of Paul's ministry that he, he even serves as a co-author with some of Paul's letters. It's just fascinating when you think about that. It's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, here is Timothy, and he's co-writing uh, at least six of Paul's epistles, and he's with Paul as a, as a delegate. When he's, not, when, when he's not with Paul, rather, he's serving as a representative of Paul in places like Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus. He was standing, essentially, in the place of the Apostle Paul. It developed with Paul a level of trust and confidence that Paul could say, receive Timothy, receive me. And he did this for nearly 20 years. Uh, Timothy followed him for nearly 20 years, serving right with him, alongside him. And now we come to 2 Timothy, and Paul is at the end of his life. He sends this last letter. 2 Timothy is the, likely the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, at least that we have. And these last words to Timothy are, are aimed at encouraging him and strengthening him for the task that God had set before him. Now, you remember that 1st, 2nd Timothy are written to Timothy, and he is likely in Ephesus, right? He's in Ephesus. There's a church there. Paul has spent time there. And things in Ephesus are not going well for Timothy. All right, Ephesus was a very pagan, hostile culture. Uh, and not only that... Uh, from reading 1 Timothy, we see that there were false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And the result of that was that the church itself in Ephesus was in disarray. Right, things were not going well. So Paul sent Timothy there to set things straight, as it were, to confront the false teachers and to get things back in order. And the, the problem that Timothy faced along the way begun, uh, had begun to drain him. And Timothy was now in a place where Paul was concerned that his most faithful disciple might be tempted to give up the fight, to abandon ship. And from the letter itself, 2 Timothy, it seems that Timothy was weakening spiritually and was just in a general state of discouragement. So in order to put some wind in Timothy's sails, Paul writes this last letter of encouragement to him. And the hope is that Timothy would be strengthened to press on, face the opposition, in the church, but also in society at large. Now, it's with all that in mind, all right, Timothy's discouragement, opposition, that we come to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. So what do you say to a guy in his 40s, probably, uh, facing all sorts of opposition from society, from the church, from leadership? He's discouraged. What do you say to him? What would you say to him? Well, I, I don't think he would do what Paul did. And maybe we should, but it's striking what Paul does. Look at, look at verse 3. 
Look, look how it begins, or not verse 3, chapter 3, sorry. Look at how chapter 3 opens. It says, now realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. That's a strange way to encourage someone. Or you can almost hear Timothy saying, what? <laughs> they will come? Uh, this is pretty difficult, Paul. You know what's going on here. What do you mean in the last days, difficult times will come. They're, they've arrived already. But what, what Paul is doing is, is somewhat striking. He, he's not withholding the truth from Timothy. He's not just saying, hey, it's going to be okay. Press on. We'll get through it. No, he says, Timothy, this is hard. And it's actually going to get increasingly more difficult. And he shoots straight with him. And, and he unfolds for him exactly what's going to happen. And he says that in the last days, which is a period of time, uh, spanning from Christ's incarnation to his second coming. These are the last days in which we live. These days will be marked by increasing difficulty. In the last days, verse 1 of chapter 3, difficult times will come. Look at verse 2. He says, but realize this, difficult times will come. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You think it's difficult now, discouraged Timothy. Uh, it will only get worse until... The Lord returns to set things straight and to vindicate His people who are being faithful in a world of opposition. So don't think, Timothy, that the pressure is going to let up. Don't think that it's just going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. Okay, now we need some encouragement. What, what, are you, what do we do, Paul? How do we, how do we faithfully follow Christ when we're discouraged, life is difficult? What do we do? Well, how is Timothy going to obey, persevere, and glorify the Lord through this difficulty that will increasingly be on him until the Lord returns to vindicate his people and make things right? Well, this is where verses 10 to 13 come in. The first thing that Paul does for Timothy here is he reminds Timothy of the trajectory of his life. He calls Timothy to remember who he ha is following, and who he has followed for the past 20 years. You left Lystra. You have been following me, Paul, or Timothy. Now look at verse 10. He says, now you followed my teaching. This is an obvious statement, but Timothy must not forget it. You followed my teaching. right? You're not following the teachings of, of someone who says, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? You're following the teachings that I've given you. And nothing in those teachings has changed, Timothy. I've told you it was going to be hard from the very beginning. Our Lord said that, uh, John 16, 33. He said, in this world, you will have ease and comfort. No. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the word flipsis. It's pressure, difficulty, opposition. And, and Peter tells us, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. So you followed my teaching, Timothy. 
don't be surprised at what's going on here. And don't be surprised that it's going to get more difficult. You know what I've taught you. You know what we've seen. And Timothy just needs to remember and continue in the teaching that he's been given from his discipler, Paul. And so he goes on in verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Now this is not an accidental or whimsical list that Paul throws down without any care. We need to notice that. Verses 10 to 11, this is not incidental. The list actually groups into several categories. The first is teaching and conduct. You could put those together. Teaching and conduct. In Paul's theology, we see this over and again. You have indicative and imperative, or truth and then command. Right? So teaching and conduct. Teaching is what is the truth. Conduct is what do we do about it. And those go hand in hand. And that's not just Pauline, right? That's our Lord. Think about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. There are two types of hearers. People who come to church and hear sermons all the time, and it goes in one ear and out the other. And Jesus says those are foolish people. The wise hearer is the person who hears the sermon, hears the word of God, and then says, how can I change in light of that truth? Right? And this was true with Paul. Teaching and conduct go hand in hand. Paul's theology, in Paul's understanding uh, that he got from Christ, teaching and conduct were inseparable. Right teaching always produces right conduct. Right teaching always produces right conduct. Another way to put that is right theology, theology leads to or produces right living. It's not enough to have right theology. If your theology is truly right and biblical, it will necessarily produce a right life. And if your life is not right, it's indicative of a theology that's not right. So the word conduct here simply means a way of life. And these two things, teaching and conduct, are inseparable. What you believe, and note this, what you believe determines how you live. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. Right teaching, right doctrine. But notice the third thing on this list. Right teaching or doctrine also determines the purpose of your life. It determines your conduct, but it also determines your purpose. Your theology determines your conduct and your purpose. The idea here, uh, the word rather, speaks to that which is planned in advance. Right, the purpose. That which is planned in advance. Interestingly, it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 1.11 to describe God's purpose and planning of all things, and Romans 8.28, that God purposes, plans, uh, strategically works everything for good for those who love him. That's the purpose. The word then speaks of the purposes and resolves of your life. Right? What are you doing? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? What do you hope to accomplish? It's the direction of your life, your plan. Now, Timothy had been in lockstep with Paul for 20 years. Right? He had followed Paul as long as, uh, as long he had followed Paul and was seeking to help him evangelize the world and follow Christ and advance Christ's kingdom. 
And all of their activities, right, evangelizing the world, all of that was grounded in what they believed God about God and what they believed God had called them to do. Right, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He saw as his one aim to bring the gospel to the nations, right, to glorify the Lord. That belief formed Paul's purpose and ambition and aim. And Timothy had shared that same theology, same view. And thus he joined Paul in the work to die to self and take the gospel to the nations. Their conduct, their missionary efforts, their lives, and their purposes all flowed out of their theology, what they believed about God. And that's true for us as well. Now, the next four items on this list are virtues. Right? He says... Let me get my place here. You have followed, verse 10, my teaching, conduct, purpose. And then he gets into virtues. These virtues also flow out of right theology. They also do. Uh, they accompany your purpose, resolve, as you live out God's plan for you. They, and they're these. First one, first one is faith. Faith, he says. That's believing God. Right? And then patience. That's the capacity to bear up under difficulty. Love, this kind regard for others. And then perseverance. That's a state of being able to bear up under difficulties and pains without complaining. Right? And we'll come back to those in, in just a minute. But notice at least, uh, notice, sorry, the, two, the last two items on this, this list he says, you followed my persecutions and my sufferings. Right? Persecutions are these systematically organized oppressions of the people of God. And sufferings are the painful results of that persecution. He says, you followed me. All right, so that's the list. Okay? If you're confused, get back on board right now. So that we see the list, but I want you to see something specific about this list, and this is the thing I really want you to get. There is a sort of formula in this list. All right? It's not just accidental. There's a formula here, and it's imperative for us to come to grips with it, especially if we want to live faithfully to God in the midst of opposition. If you don't understand this formula, you will not have the proper expectations about life in a fallen world. So here's the formula. All right. The formula is this, right theology leads to right conduct, leads to right resolves and purposes, leads to virtuous living. We like that, right? We like that. But then leads to inevitable persecution and pain. That we would like to leave off. Here's the formula again. Right theology leads to right conduct, leads to right purposes, or resolves, leads to virtuous living, leads to inevitable persecution and pain in this life. And this principle, formula, is affirmed in verse 12, the following verse. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. That's the end of the equation. 
All those who hold proper theology will conduct themselves in a certain way, Christ-like, which will inevitably lead to persecution. It's a sobering reality, but it's necessary for proper expectations. If you're going to be faithful in the world, you need to have the right expectations. There's nothing like having the uh, expectation of a warm meal when you come home, and then coming home and it's, it's nothing. <laughs> or a sandwich, maybe a cold sandwich, I don't know. Um, expectations are essentially reflective of our heart idols, the things we want. And what Paul is doing here with Timothy is he's trying to shape Timothy's expectations. Timothy, don't, don't forget what we're doing here. Don't forget and, and lose sight of who you're following and what you ought to be expecting in this life. In other words, this is not your heaven, Timothy. This is not it for you. Don't try to live like this is heaven for you. Or you will be terribly discouraged and disappointed. Now, this formula of right theology leads to right conduct, leads to right purposes or resolves, leads to virtuous living, which leads to inevitable persecution and pain. This formula was true in the apostle's life, right? And we see that. We see that he specifically mentions, interestingly, he mentions Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Lystra was Timothy's hometown. It was here that Timothy, in his early to mid-20s, like I said, would have first heard Paul preaching the gospel. And Timothy would have most likely witnessed the consequences of Paul's lived-out theology, which was stoning and horrible treatment of the Apostle Paul that he received in Lystra, as well as Iconium and in Antioch, as well as Timothy would have heard the murmuring about this man uh, in his town. Not only would he have witnessed the stoning and the persecutions, but he would have heard everyone's opinion about this terrible man. We also have to remember that Paul, as he was going about his work, he's simply following Christ. Christ is the one who had called him here. Christ is the one who had called him to preach, proclaim the truth. And Christ is the one who, for some mysterious reason, was allowing Paul to be stoned almost every other day, it seems like. And he was always under persecution. It was because, though, the world hated not Paul, the world hated Jesus. Right? They hated the one that the man followed. They hated Paul's theology. If Paul would have stopped preaching Christ, he could have had a nice, cushy, easy life. But the world hated Paul because it hates Jesus. It hated Paul's virtue just as it hated Christ's virtue. It hated Paul's purpose in life just as it hated Christ's purpose. And so the consequence of our Lord was they crucified him. And Jesus said, if they have so maligned the master of the house, how much more will they mistreat the servants, right? And Jesus told those who follow him. He says this in John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because, no, just listen closely, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's Paul's theology. And so Paul is looking at Timothy, who's discouraged and struggling with all the difficulties he has on his plate. And he says, Timothy, this is difficult. But do not forget who we are following. We follow the king of heaven who came to earth and was maligned, mistreated, crucified, persecuted, tortured, and whose memory even to this day is still maligned. That's who we're following, Timothy. Don't lose sight of that. That's an interesting thing. We see a similar thing in 1 John 1, 11-13. The world saw Jesus' virtue and it repulsed them. Right? The world saw Jesus' virtue and it repulsed the world. The world saw Paul's virtue and they were repulsed by it. Um, you, you know, it's holier than thou, and you've probably heard something like that, maybe. And the world sees our virtue and is repulsed by it, and they call it hate speech and other things. Now, we don't want to give any credence to that, of course, uh, but that's another sermon. Um, but the world, in its hostility to God, hates anything that is God-like. Let me just read you First John 1, verses 11 to 13. John says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. Now, you may be saying, what relevance does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, listen. Notice what John says is the reason that Cain slew Abel. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The world hates anything godlike. And if you take up the cross and follow the king, you will gain the hatred of the world in which we inhabit. And you sign up for that, friends, when you come to Christ. And Timothy is being reminded of this reality. And and Timothy is essentially faced with two options. Is he going to go the route of ease and embrace um, the, the, the theology of the false teachers that's not being opposed, that's embraced? Or is he going to stick with the Calvary road and follow Christ? Who is he going to follow? Is he going to follow Paul in Christ? Or is he going to follow his own, maybe his desire for ease and comfort? Well, Paul says, Timothy, remember who you follow. We follow in a long chain of men and women, boys, girls, who have followed others, who have followed Christ in the face of major opposition. That's true for us. It's true for Timothy. And these people were able to persevere and live faithfully in the world because they remembered who they followed behind. They were following Christ, the one who gave everything for them the one who died for them so that they would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. They were able to face opposition with joy and confidence because they knew that although the world didn't recognize Jesus' sovereignty and lordship, 
those who follow Christ do. And we know that the King will come. And He will set all things right. And His people will be vindicated. Even if the world mocks us now, and if they say, your King is no King at all. And Paul was able to say, 2 Timothy 3.11, the end of verse 11, he says, out of them all, out of all these persecutions, the Lord rescued me. The Lord was faithful to him. Now, if you, friend, want to be faithful in a hostile world, you have to remember who you follow. Our models are those, listen closely, our models are those who have immovably stood on biblical truth. And that truth produced sound, God-glorifying lives, which produced ambitions and resolves and virtuous lives that, that endured immense opposition and persecution. But they were able to remain faithful and to continue to live virtuous lives because their eyes were fixed on who they followed. They were not hardened by opposition, but the blows of society seemed to soften their hearts, to melt them to compassion, not to hardness against a secular society. Their hearts broke for those who cursed them. We see that in 2 Corinthians 6, 4-13 with the Apostle Paul. Paul's, heart, Paul's opposition didn't harden him you know, like the, the blows of a, um, a blacksmith's hammer on the anvil. It softened his heart. And we see actually this is the, the pattern in history. It's amazing. Uh, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you think about those who have endured some of the most intense persecution, uh, one of those men was Polycarp. Polycarp uh, met the Roman soldiers who came to him he, to, to crucify him. He met them on their way with food and drink as they were coming to take him off to be burned at the stake. Uh, William Tyndale is another one whose final words before the chain around his neck strangled him to death were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Not curse him, but open his eyes. He can't see what we see. Now, there are oppositions that we face in our culture. You every day face them. But we have to be careful that we are not hardened by these, but that we are softened by them. And that our hearts yearn for the repentance of those who crucified our Lord and also who would want to crucify us in, in various ways. We must avoid the extreme of hardness and the extreme of compromise and maintain sound theology that produces compassionate, virtuous lives, even when our virtue is scorned and hated. That's true faithfulness. All right, so remember who you follow. That's number one. So if Timothy is to be faithful to God, he must remember who he follows. He's following Paul, who's following Christ. He, is, he must not, rather, begin following the wicked men who will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He must continue to follow Paul as he follows Christ. Secondly, if, Paul is, if Timothy is going to be faithful in a world of opposition, he must remain in the truth. Remain in the truth. Remember who you follow, but also remain in the truth. 
While wicked men will try to escape opposition by compromise, theologically, or by deception, Timothy is not permitted to do that. In order to be faithful to God, Timothy must remain in the truth, just like you and I. If we're going to be faithful, we have to stand on the Word of God. But look at verse 14. It says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, you cannot go their way. You have to follow me, and you must continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. In other words, Timothy, your life is on the right trajectory. You've learned the truth, you're convinced of it. And if you're going to be faithful, you must continue holding on to what you have believed. The word continue here is the same word Jesus uses in John 15 for abide, abide in me. It means to remain in or to continue in. And the object here in verse 14, the remaining or the continuing in is the continuation in the truth. In the truth. Don't bounce around, Timothy, from one theological system to another to avoid persecution. Right? Or, or even to gain popularity. Rather, you are to stay solid. Stay fixed on truth. Remain in the truth. Now, here's the natural question. How is Timothy to abide in the truth? Right, it's one thing to say, continue in the truth. It's like saying, oh, you're sinning? Well, stop it. Stop doing that. It's really easy. Um, he, he says, continue in the truth. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us very clear instructions. First, he says, uh, you, you, you remain in the truth by keeping a few things in mind. Right, you remember a couple of things. Here's what you need to do. First, you need to remember your spiritual heritage. Remember the people who taught you the truth. That's verses 14 and 15. And then, remember the source of truth. Verses 15 to 17. Remember your spiritual heritage, Timothy. But also remember the source of truth. The world is it's a battle for truth. Whose, whose word is going to prevail? Will it be God's word? Will that prevail in your heart as truth? Or will you be the arbiter for truth in your own life? Or will it be the world who tells you what truth is? This, this is really a battle for truth. And if you're going to continue in the truth, remember your spiritual heritage, he says, and the source of truth. Look at verse 14. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Right, that's the truth. Things you've learned and become convinced of. Knowing, knowing, knowing what? Knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood, and that rather, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Now this is a reference to Timothy's spiritual heritage. In one way, Timothy can, one way that Timothy can persevere is to remember the godly heritage that's been entrusted to him. There were two women in, Paul's, or in Timothy's life uh, his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. And we see them in chapter 1. And these women were believers, lived in Lystra, this rude, uh, dirty town in modern-day Turkey. 
They were believers. They were commended by Paul for their faith in chapter 1. And they loved Timothy. And from an early age, they had inculcated him with Scripture. Apparently, this is what Paul is referencing. You know that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. And that's just really fascinating. Because the word here for childhood uh, refers to a very small child usually and is often used even of unborn children. All right, So Timothy, as far back as you can recall, these two godly women had sought to orient you around the truth of God's word. And some of you, that's your life too, right? You had a godly woman who, uh, you know, before you were even born, was reading scripture to you, you know, inculcating you with the word of God. And that's the image with these two godly women in Timothy's life. Timothy, you know the truth. These women who loved you, they, they've steeped you in the truth of God's word from the beginning, for, really from the time you can remember. Now, there is certainly a point there to be made about the role of a mother. We could say much about that, but I don't have much time for that. Um, A mom who loves God, let me say this in brief. A mom who loves God and loves her children will make sure that her children are steeped. Steeped in God's Word. Steeped in the Word of God. Uh, it's, It's what we're called to do. That's what you mothers are called to do, and fathers are too, Deuteronomy 6. Um, but a mom who loves her children will make sure her children are steeped in the Word of God. There are great, uh, if you've not read the, the story of Monica, the uh, mother of St. Augustine, the Bishop of Alexandria, it's a great story of a mother's love uh, for her son, really a wayward son, who eventually becomes the most influential Christian to probably have ever lived. Um, but we don't have time for that. So, Lois and Eunice had labored in love for Timothy. They loved him. They had showered him with the truth. And, and, and we know that's what love does. It gives, right? It gives what we have that others need. And the fundamental thing your children need is the truth of God. That's what they need. And so, that's what we have to give them. And Timothy had received this. Now, what does this have to do with continuing in the truth? Well, I think it has this to do with it. Timothy had two options in front of him. He could continue to walk in the same truth that he had received from the people who loved him the most in this world, including Paul. Or he could go out and walk in the untruths of the false teachers who were characterologically liars and deceivers and lovers of self. Those are his two options. Am I going to follow the, in the path of those who have loved me the most my whole life? Or am I going to follow the path of these people who are characteristically liars, deceivers, tell me they love me, but I know that it's not true. And this is actually one of the the tragedies of false theology. Uh, The proponents of heresy and advocates of biblical compromise do not love the people they're trying to entice to come over to their position. They don't love them. They don't care about them actually at all. They care about their own egos. They care about their own fame. They care about their own... Um, financial prosperity, and we see that all around us. And they're, they're, in fact, doing the work of the devil. These are doctrines of demons, says the Apostle Paul. And the devil's the enemy of our soul. Right? And so the, the, what Paul is doing is saying, you know these people who love you so much, and then you have these people who hate you. Which one are you going to choose? Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? Remember your spiritual heritage. Don't forget it. 
Listen to this description in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 8 of these false teachers. These are the people, Timothy, who are trying to entice you. Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Janus and Jambres were the people who opposed Moses. I think uh, that's tradition when he threw down his staff and performed other things in Egypt. Uh, But like them, these people are actually opposed to the truth. And these precious women were being deceived by them because they thought these were Bible teachers. These are Bible teachers. Let's be hospitable. Let's bring them in our home. We'll welcome them here. And they didn't realize that these men were actually opposed to the truth, depraved in mind, and actually rejected according to the faith. They didn't love them. Rather, they hated them. And this is the case with proponents of heresy and compromise. They don't care about us. They don't care about you. But like Eve in the garden, we can be so easily tempted to believe their lies, uh, the lies of people who don't care for us, any more than Satan cared for Eve in the garden. Uh, These proponents of false theology, they don't care about us. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy, essentially. And so one way that you abide in the truth is remember your spiritual heritage. Remember the people who truly love you. And you, you, some of you teenagers are facing that right now. Right? You're coming to terms with your own faith. And you're trying to evaluate what is true. Is this true? Or is what my culture telling me? Is that true? And you are you know, faced with a, a major decision, similar to what Timothy is faced with here. Will you believe the, the folks who love you the most and have given you the word continually? Or will you believe the people who honestly uh, hate you and want to ruin your life? That sounds very dramatic, but it's basically the truth, fundamentally the truth. Which will you believe? You have a decision to make. Well, we would plead with you. Remember the spiritual heritage that you've been given. And second, if you want to continue in the truth, holding on to the truth, remember the source of truth. Remember what the ultimate source of truth is, namely, the Word of God. According to verse 15, these writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That is, Scripture. Scripture is the source of truth. And Scripture teaches you that the most fundamental reality of your existence as we know, is that you, we are sinners, alienated from God, we've offended a holy creator, and we need a savior. And that, that really is all implicit in the word salvation. Verse 15, they're able to lead you to salvation. Salvation is necessary because we've offended God, and we need a savior. Well, scripture is the only source that's able to make you wise to attain such a salvation. Anyone who says otherwise is propagating a lie. So, the source of truth is the Word of God. And it's able to make one wise unto salvation. This is specifically the Old Testament, which is um, striking. The Old Testament is clear. It's human language to us that's crystal clear that we can understand the original 
the early church, the, their whole, the whole early church, the standard, the foundation that they stood upon was the Old Testament Scripture. It's clear. It doesn't need to be reinterpreted, reinvented, um, anything like that. It's clear enough to make you wise unto salvation. And this is what this passage tells us. Now, according to the first few words of verse 16, look there with me, these writings, they're able to make you wise unto salvation in the present and in the future, but they're also inspired by God. Inspired by God. Literally, they're God-breathed. Old Testament, New Testament. They're God-breathed. They're the breath of God. They're the words of God. They're inspired to the extent that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. The words of Scripture are the very words of God. And what this tells us is that Scripture itself determines truth, determines reality. Because ultimately, the words of God are from the one who created reality. Scripture determines truth, it determines reality, because these are the words of the God who created reality, who's created it all. And he's the one who tells us what is true. And the next part of verse 16 tells us that these writings are not only God-breathed, but they're useful. They're useful. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable or useful for several purposes. And we'll go through these relatively quickly. So if you're thinking, how long is he going to go? I knew that he was last minute getting up there, but is he just winging this up here? No. No. We'll work through this relatively quickly. Um, all scripture, he says, is profitable for teaching. The word profitable here is useful. It's useful. It's not only determinative of reality, it's useful. It's helpful. It's profitable. What, for what? What is it helpful for? Well, it's, it's helpful or useful for teaching. Because they contain truth, scripture is profitable for teaching. The Old and the New Testament are the comprehensive body of truths for a God-honoring life. The Old and the New Testament are the comprehensive body of truth that we need if we are going to live a God-honoring life. You want to know the truth? I hope you do. Well, you have to know the Word of God. The source of truth is profitable. The Word of God is profitable. It's profitable for, for teaching, but it's also useful or profitable for reproof. It's useful for reproof. Why? Because Scripture contains the norm for human behavior. It's the norm for human behavior. The Bible gives us the norm for how every person ought to live. Deviations from Scripture are perversions of God's design and objective for humanity. But society would have you believe otherwise. Uh, deviations from this book in society are welcomed and celebrated, right? That's because society is opposed to virtue and godliness. This is why they crucified our Lord. Deviations from Scripture are not to be glorified and celebrated. They're to be mourned. They're not to be hated in the sense that we oppose them physically or despise the people who deviate from God's Word. No, they're to be, we are to be sorrowful and brokenhearted over the people who 
oppose God and his word and deviate. Once you do that, once you go from God's perfect standard for life, you know it's really hard. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor, a transgressor is someone who deviates from the word of God, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's difficult. It's painful. And we see that all around us. Wrecked lives, painful family situations, we see it all over. Well, Scripture is able to reprove us. It's able to correct us. It, it, it means it's able to state that someone has done wrong. With the implication that there's adequate proof we can prove that their activity is wrong, right? So a reproof is where we say, brother, I love you, uh, but God's word says this, and you're doing this. Do you see the disconnect? <laughs> That's a reproof. It exposes wrong and error in our hearts and in our lives. It's useful for Reproof, but it's also useful for correction. Why? Because God doesn't just tell you you're wrong, right? He doesn't just say, stop it. He tells you we're wrong because he sets the standard for us, but he also corrects us. His desire is to redirect us back onto the godly path, the path that brings him honor. Scripture exposes error, but it also graciously tells you how to correct it. And also, on top of that, tells you that there is a gracious Savior who died for you. And and rather than you receiving the punishment you deserve for your deviation from God's word, Jesus died on your behalf so you could be forgiven. God's desire is to restore us, not just spiritually, but also in our lives, horizontally. So he gives us not just a reprove, but a corrective to get back on to doing, the way, do, doing life the way that God has called us to do it. Lastly, Scripture is profitable. Verse 16, Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. This is the same word used uh, in Ephesians 6, 4, where Paul calls us to train up our children. That's what Scripture does to us. It trains us up. Just as parents actively are involved in the lives of their kids, providing guidance for responsible living, which is what the word uh, paideia means, we want to instruct our children, and God instructs his children through his written word. God's desire is that we are formed into people who, who appropriate God-glorifying habits and live lives that are maximally um, pleasing to Him. That's God's desire. God's desire is that you would formulate, correct your life, live your life based on the clear teachings of Scripture, and that your life would bring Him great glory. Now, in light of all of that, this is what Scripture is, this is what Scripture does. It's profitable for training, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, that the man of God... Uh, or for training in righteousness. So in light of all of that, why, Timothy, would you leave it? Don't be tempted to go anywhere else. Don't, don't go anywhere else. God's word is the perfect source for truth and life. In these sacred writings, we are given all that we need to live faithfully in our current setting. 
You don't need anything else than what God has given you right here to be faithful in our increasingly hostile society. You don't have to go outside of this. You have it right here. And it says, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete, that is, proficient, and he may be able to meet all the demands that come to him, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good, <clears throat> good work. Excuse me. That is what Scripture does. So if you are going to, <clears throat> if you're going to honor the Lord in a society that is increasingly hostile to God, you've got to remember who you follow. You've got to follow those who are following Christ. And remember, our Lord is the one who laid his life down for us. He's worthy of our lives. And he's also called us to follow him. We're to remember who we follow, but we're also to remain in the truth. Remain in the truth. Cling to the truth. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that is a very discouraging sermon. Uh, You're telling me that we're going to be essentially crucified in our lives. Thank you. Um, Well, let me just give you a little bit of encouragement here. 2 Timothy, flip over to the end of this book, chapter 4. If we follow these people who have laid their life down, who have followed Christ so faithfully and have, have stood on truth in the face of increasing opposition in a society that is opposed to God and His Word, those people who have not compromised, if we follow them, we receive the same blessing and benefit of them and the same provision that they received. You follow Christ, you receive the same cre- treatment uh, as Christ from the world. But the glory of the gospel is you receive the same treatment that Christ received from the Father, right? Union with Christ. Now, you follow Paul, you receive the same treatment Paul receives in this world. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. But you also receive the same provision and care and and shepherding that the Apostle Paul received all of his life. And, And look at how Paul's life ends. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16 At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. It's a tragic statement. But notice verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Notice verse 18. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You follow Paul, you will be persecuted. But you will also be kept by God. You will be rescued from every evil deed, and the Lord, your God, the one you follow, will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. And we'll say, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord help us follow our brother Paul. Let's pray. Father, you are great, and we love you, and we thank you for your word, and we do pray, Father, that you would help us to have the courage we need to stand in a world that is opposed to you. Lord, we do feel the increasing opposition uh, to Christ and to your church. 
Lord, we would be those who stand with your word, stand on your word, stand with those who have faithfully followed you throughout history. Lord, would you help us to follow them as they follow Christ? Lord, we want to please you, so would you do that? Help us that we might do that. Lord, we love you and we praise you for our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.